episode 11. Can you even imagine? Did you even figure that we would be here together all these weeks later, all this content later, all these episodes later, and you and I are still right here learning to be twice the Lutheran. Welcome back again. Glad to have you. Of all the things you could be doing, you decide to hang out with Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's because I'm twice the Lutheran. (laughs) That's why you're here. And I am so glad to have you with me. Welcome, welcome. No doubt, no fewer than... 10,000 people considered supporting this podcast with their donations after last week's episode. But alas, approximately zero have done so. They were thinking about it. Even you were thinking about it. So here's another opportunity for you to help offset the podcast costs. As it's been said, support the things you love before they go away. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. If you are so inclined to support our work and this content, you can donate on PayPal. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. And maybe I'll have some other way that makes it even simpler for you at some point in the future. Thank you for considering If you haven't yet listened to the first 10 episodes, then you can't claim to be twice the Lutheran yet. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, go back. Go back. Start with episode numero uno. That's Spanish for number one. And take a listen. And then binge listen and catch up. (laughs) But I'm glad to have you if this is your first time here. We spend our time digging into God's Word, looking for answers to life, looking for meaning, looking for what it means to be a Christian and a Lutheran, and then going one step further and figuring out how to be twice the Lutheran. So far in... 10 episodes, we have worked our way up to the fourth commandment. Last week, we spent some time discussing God's representatives, and we spent most of our time talking about God's representatives at home. The fourth commandment is about God's representatives. They're about authorities on earth. And we dwelled on the authorities that God has given us at home and how they are a blessing to us and what obligations we have as parents to our children and as children to our parents. If you don't remember, here again is the fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. What? Does this mean we should fear and love God that we do not dishonor or anger our parents and others in authority, 
but honor, serve, and obey them, and give them love and respect. And we learned that those authorities that God has given exist in three, let's say, realms. Home, government, and church. That's where he has established his representatives, people that act with his authority, with divine authority, to speak and act with the permission from God to do so. And so you parents, if you're listening and you're a parent, you have a high and holy responsibility to your children Because you are God's representative in your home, in your home. And you have a high and holy responsibility to your parents. No matter how old you are, that relationship changes somewhat as you go through your decades. And yet through those representatives, God intends to bring you blessing. As the Apostle Paul said, this is the first commandment with a blessing. So let's move on then from the home into sort of wider society. Where else has God given authority? He's given authority to men. We, we talked about this a little bit. He's, uh, last episode, that is. He's given authority to men in the church, his representatives in church. And this is a little bit of a repeat from last week, Hebrews 13. And by the way, I'm on page 69 in your catechism, if you're following along. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17 say this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. They are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give an account as men who will give an account. An account to who about what? An account to God about their ministry and about the souls of those in their congregation. Some people have asked in the past, by the way, this is a little bit of an aside, why do we, practice, why do we have this practice of church membership? Why do we have membership roles and membership rosters? One way to answer that simply, speaking from a pastoral perspective, is out of kindness to your pastors. <laughs> I have to answer for souls on Judgment Day. And if you don't know this yet about God, he takes the care of souls very seriously. <laughs> surprise, surprise. He takes the care of souls very seriously, more serious than anything else in the entire universe. God is concerned about souls and getting souls home to heaven. And souls get to heaven through the word of Christ, and the word of Christ gets to people through the preachers, through the ear canals. So how do I know as a pastor who am I supposed to answer for? Who am I responsible for? One of the ways I can answer that, who has placed their soul under my God-given care. And the care that I share with my associate, my fellow pastors. How do we know who we are supposed to answer for? One way to answer that is the membership. That's who I know I have a divine obligation to. 
Now, do I have a divine obligation to share the word of Christ with all people? Well, sure. Yes, that's true. And that's true for every Christian, too. But in a higher way, a pastor has to answer for the souls under his care. I am keeping watch, according to Hebrews, I am keeping watch over souls as a man who must give an account. So what I say and what I teach and what I preach, it matters. I must give an account to God for what I give to you on this podcast. Why do you think pastors spend so much time being very careful, very meticulous to prepare a sermon or a Bible class or, yes, even a podcast? Because each word is going to be weighed and accounted for, and it must be truthful. Now, the Apostle Paul, a little later in 1 Timothy here in the Catechism, he wrote to a young pastor, Timothy. Here's what he said. Pay close attention to yourself and to the doctrine. Doctrine, again, that fancy word for teaching, the teachings of the Bible. So he tells young pastor Timothy, watch out, pay close attention, be careful. To what? To yourself, the way you're living. God has a standard. Yes, it's true for all people, but in an especially high and pointed way for those who serve in public ministry. And the apostle is saying, pay close attention. You know why? Because it's easy to lapse. It's easy to forget. It's easy to get lazy. Being lazy is easy. Have you figured that out in life yet? (laughs) If there's one thing we're really good at, it's sitting around and doing nothing. Or wasting our time doing a bunch of stuff that in the end doesn't necessarily add up to much. And so self-discipline for the Christian is important. And self-discipline for the called worker is vital. Pay attention to the way you live. Pay attention to the words you're using, the food you're eating, etc., etc. So pay close attention to yourself, Paul says, and to young Pastor Timothy, to the doctrine, the doctrine, the teachings. Pay close attention to make sure you teach what must be taught. It is. Just as it's easy to be lazy it's easy, uh, with, your, with your life and with your living, it's also easy to be lazy with the things you teach. It's easy to fall into a bad habit of saying things that people want to hear. It's easy to preach some of the Bible. It is difficult to preach all of the Bible. It is difficult to tell people what they need to hear. And so the warning... The caution that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy is in place for all pastors. Pay close attention. Yes, it's in place for all Christians, and in this case, very specifically for all pastors and teachers. Pay close attention to yourself and to the doctrine, the teachings. And here's what he says. Persevere in them, which gives you the implication that this is not going to be easy. It requires an element of perseverance, getting through difficulty continuing in self-discipline, to persevere against a challenge against those things. Persevere in them. Why? Because by doing this, Paul says, you will save both yourself, 
and those who listen to you. Interesting, huh? The Apostle Paul is not afraid to say that he himself and other pastors save people. No, I'm not a savior. I'm not your savior. I didn't die for your sins. But as a pastor, I point you to the one who did. To Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for you. To the Son of God, who redeemed and purchased your soul. To Jesus Christ, who opened up heaven for you. That's who I'm pointing you towards. And so from one perspective, the Apostle Paul is pointing to what we call the ministerial cause of salvation. Because preachers point you to Jesus, and so in one sense you'd say, Paul and Timothy and pastors save you. Now you got to kind of read through that, because it means that they're pointing you to the thing that really saves you the gospel news of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. That's the power for your salvation. But if you don't have a preacher, a teacher, a pastor to point you in that direction, then you wander around in life and in faith, and you never find your way to heaven because no one's willing to tell you, well, you have landed in just the right spot at just the right time. Here I am pointing you. And let me also tell you that it is God's will, his good and gracious and holy will, that you would find a church that would do the same for you day by day and week by week. I am happy to have you join me on this podcast, but unless you are a member at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Watertown, Wisconsin, then I am not your pastor. Now, if you're looking for a pastor and you want to join my church, this church, welcome. Glad to have you. But maybe you're listening from far away. I'm not your pastor. This is not church. I am a pastor, and this is a podcast. Yes, I'm bringing bringing to you the word of Christ, but it is God's will for you to find a church. Now, if you live far away and you're wondering, well, Pastor Wells, where can I find a church? Send me an email, podcast at twicetolutheran.org, and I'll get you in the right direction. Back to the catechism. God says there's representatives in the church, and they have an obligation to you. They have an obligation to give you the truth of God's word, whether you like it or not, because you need to hear the truth. Now, how does God bring you blessings through those preachers and teachers? That one's kind of obvious, right? He blesses you by bringing you peace. Peace in knowing that your sins are forgiven. Peace in knowing that you have a home waiting for you in heaven. And finally, at the end, eternal peace. When you are living with him in heaven, does that count as a blessing? Why, I think so. Now, there's one other realm. That sounds so medieval, doesn't it? The realm. Welcome to the realm. There's one other realm of life that God has given you representatives and leaders. You guessed it. The government. Man, that is a charged conversation nowadays, isn't it? 
It seems that everyone is willing to look at the world through a political lens. Didn't always used to be that way. Especially men used to ask themselves important questions, importanter questions. I don't want to inv- I don't want to imply that political questions aren't important. I am a news junkie. I love following politics. It's like a, a pastime hobby of mine. But finally in the end, isn't there more important questions? Questions of faith, questions of God's word, and even questions of morality. How do I live my life in this world? So men used to ask them themselves important questions like, is this honorable? What does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to practice self-sacrifice? What does it mean to be a good man? And that would be a healthy thing for all men and women too. To meditate on. What does this mean to live as a Christian in this world? What does it mean to be an honorable person? That's ultimately what we've been studying because the answers are clearly given to us in the Ten Commandments. Now, going back to politics and the government, where did the government come from? Interesting question, isn't it? Interesting question. Where does the government come from? If you uh, read in the Constitution, the United States Constitution says the government is based on the consent of the people. Not bad. Not bad. But I want to give you the answer from God's Word. Maybe you knew this or maybe you didn't, but here's the verse that establishes the government. you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, 6 says, and this is, I don't think, in the catechism. I didn't see it in here. I'm giving you extra. You're welcome. Genesis 9, 6, here's what it says. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you're wondering, well, how does that establish the government? I never would have seen that. Here's the context. Noah gets off the the ark. Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis chapter 9, God cuts his covenant. That's what it means, makes a promise to Noah and his sons. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then we hear for the first time animals are going to be afraid of people. Every animal on earth and every bird of the sky will fear you and dread you. Everything that swarms on the ground and all the fish of the sea are handed over to you. So this is part of God's uh, bringing safety to human beings. Animals with their increased strength and brutality over humans will now have a fear. That's one way that God keeps us safe. But, he says, but. Oh, sorry. First, verse 3, every living, moving thing will be food for you. There's the first directive. Go ahead and eat the animals. I've given them to you just as I gave you the green plants, but flesh that has the blood which is life still in it, you shall not eat. In fact, I will hold each animal and each person responsible for your lifeblood. I will hold each man responsible for the life of his brother. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God has a high respect for life. And we're going to talk about this in the next commandment, the fifth commandment. 
But for our purposes in the fourth commandment, God, when he gave this directive, whoever kills a person by a person will be killed. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Who will do the shedding of the blood? God is not establishing anarchy here. He's not saying, you know, just anybody who wants should go ahead and chase down a killer. There's a whole lot involved in that, isn't there? There has to be an investigation. Who did the killing? What was the context? What was going on? What sort of a killing was it? But God does here give permission for human beings to arrange a meeting between a killer and God, i.e., put somebody to death. Now, who should do that? This is this this is the passage that is establishing capital punishment, and that must be done by proper authorities. And if you go all the way into the New Testament in Romans 13, you'll find that that provision is still there in the New Testament era. So the authorization for capital punishment is basically assuming the existence of a government, a properly instituted government that can carry out that directive to arrange the meeting. So if you take that along with Romans 13, you'll, you'll come to the realization the government is instituted by God. The government is there from God, and it is there to bring you a blessing. That is the underlying purpose of the government, to be a blessing. Going back into the Catechism now, still on page 69, and these, these are some repeat passages from last week. Everyone... Again, this is Romans 13. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to evil. And then you go a few verses later. For this reason, you also must pay taxes. Because the authorities are God's ministers who are employed to do this very thing. There you have the directive from God. I established the government. You are under divine directive to support the government. And in the same breath, isn't he implying that the government has specific duties here? To not be a terror to good conduct, but to be a terror to evil conduct? Isn't that what's implied here in Romans 13? So if you are in the government, if you are one of those governing authorities, you see here your directive. Be a terror to evil and support good. If you are not a governing authority and you are a citizen, you have your directive here. Submit to the governing authorities. A little later, 1 Peter 2, submit to every human authority. Why? Because they're awesome? Because you love it? Because you can't wait to pay your taxes? No. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. 
whether to the king, again, the, the Bible really only talks in terms of a monarchy, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors as those who have been sent by him to do what? To punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do what is right. Again, hear your directive if you are in the government. Punish those who do wrong, praise those who do what is right. Otherwise, you have what we call a miscarriage of justice. What is justice? Justice is making sure the bad people are punished and the good people are not. A miscarriage of justice does the opposite. A miscarriage of justice means that good people are punished and bad people are not. Now, whose job is it to hold the government accountable for those miscarriages of justice? God. God will do that, ultimately. Now, even though the Bible talks in terms of monarchy and maybe doesn't say as much about a participatory government, which if you're listening in the United States, that's what you live under, a kind of a participatory government. You have a say in who rules over you. You should exercise that ability through your voting, etc., in all those legal ways. But ultimately, if things don't go your way, just trust that God sees it all, and he will take care of it. But remember what the relationship is between the church and the government. The church is not here to tell the government what's what and who's who. That's not why we exist. Realize what the relationship is between an individual Christian and the government. You're not there to tell the government what's what and who's who. Now, yes, participate in the ways that you're legally and uh, have the ability to do. That's good. But don't forget, the government is a blessing, something God himself instituted. And guess what? We always want to support what God instituted. Now, does that mean the government can't come of, uh, come under, let's say, evil persuasions, of course it can. Just read in Revelation. That's what happens to the government. But where in the Bible does it say then that that Christians should rebel openly? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Now, is there a place for, let's say, passive resistance or civil disobedience? Well, sure, but guess what? If you're going to take up passive resistance or civil disobedience, then you must accept the punishment that comes. If as a result of your civil disobedience you must go to jail, then guess what? Go to jail. Submit to the authority taking you to jail. If your highest goal in life is to fix society, I get bad news for you. No matter what you do, this world will end and your life will end. If your highest goal in life is to fix our culture and our country, I got bad news for you. Whether you fix it or not, it disappears. Isn't the greater question then, what would God have me do? Now, this all sounds really nice and clean and black and white and clean and easy when we're talking on a podcast. I understand that reality is much more nuanced than that. I get it. I'm with you. 
But my encouragement is don't lose sight of God and his word. He has established representatives for our blessing. Blessing. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper in the catechism then. I'm going to turn the page. There's a noble idea. Make some progress, Pastor Wells. Turn the page. Page 70 now. We've made progress. A whole page turned. In what different ways do we dishonor those God has placed over us? That's the question the catechism has us asking. Boy, take your pick on that one, huh? How about this one from Romans 13 too? The one who rebels against the authority is opposing God's institution, and those who oppose will bring judgment on themselves. You know why? Because you're rebelling against God at that point. Don't do that. Bad idea. Proverbs 30, verses 11 and 17. How do we rebel against God's representatives and his authorities? says this, there's a type of person who curses his father and does not bless its mother. Ouch! Are you going to be that guy? Because remember who you're cursing when you curse your father. And remember who you are refusing to bless when you refuse to bless your mother. God stands behind that. Continuing on in Proverbs 30, an eye that mocks its father and despises the obedience due its mother, ravens of the valley will peck it out and young vultures will eat it. Yuck. Well, I mean, yum, I guess, if you're a raven and a vulture. But gross, that is punishment. An eye that mocks its father. What's it talking about there? Old man. Dumb old man. Can't believe he's a such and so and a so and so. And despises the obedience to its mother. Ah, forget her. What do I owe her? Nothing. Well, God will punish that. Ravens of the valley will peck out that eye. And young vultures will eat it. We rebel against God. When we refuse to acknowledge our responsibilities towards mom and dad. And even when we allow our own children to do so. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. But know this, in the last days there will be terrible times. Well, out the window goes everyone who says society gets better and better and more advanced and more developed. In the last days there will be terrible times. Yuck. The longer we're on earth, the worse it gets. And then he goes on to describe it. Here's what it happens in those terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves. We call that selfishness. The opposite of love is selfishness. If true love is loving somebody else with sacrifice, then being a lover of yourself is the opposite of that, selfishness. Do you know some of those people? I bet you do. But not just lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. Willing to rake somebody else over the coals. Sticking their hands in somebody else's pockets. Why? Because we love money. Not only lovers of themselves and lovers of money, but boastful. 
arrogant, I don't do anything wrong, blasphemous, forget God and everything about him, disobedient to their parents. Interesting that that one specifically is nestled in there, isn't it? Disobedient to their parents. Walking away from the blessings God would give through parents, that institution at home, the authorities at home. They'd be ungrateful and unholy, Second Timothy says. Yuck. I mean, but isn't that just such a snapshot of our world? It is just so rare to run into somebody in the street who is just pleasant, who walks around with a sense of being grateful for the blessings that God has given. Now let me point the finger back at you and me for a minute. Is that how you walk around? Do you walk around with a profound sense of being grateful, thankful? Or is every day for you just filled with whining and complaining and moaning and it's not good enough and everything's bad and it's getting worse? The Bible knows this. It just said in 2 Timothy, the last days will be terrible times. But then a mark of a terrible person in the terrible times is an ungrateful, unholy, disobedient person. Which means the terrible times we live in do not give you an excuse to walk around ungrateful and unholy and blasphemous and arrogant and loving money and boastful and loving yourself and being disobedient to your parents. The scriptures are pointing us in the opposite direction while at the same time recognizing, yes, the days will be terrible and difficult and full of difficult people, but you are called above that. You are called to not be one of them. The days are terrible and terrible people people are ungrateful and unholy. And they rebel and they're disobedient. We can at the same time say, Life is tough. Thank you, Lord. I know that seems contradictory. (laughs) We can at the same time say, my parents are tough. Thank you for them, Lord. I know it seems contradictory. We can at the same time say, the government is big and corrupt and scary. Thank you for it, Lord. I know it seems contradictory. We can at the same time say the people at my church are stubborn and stuck up and backwards and I don't like the way pastor preaches. Thank you for my church, Lord. I get it. I get it. But the Lord calls us above it. And the way we get there is by recognizing the forgiveness that Christ has given you and me. Because you might complain about the Christians at your church, but guess what? You're one of them. You're a Christian at your church, and somebody's probably complaining about you. You might complain about your parents, but for so many of you, guess what? You're one of them. You're a parent, and your kids are probably complaining about you. But we can still live grateful, thankful lives. The worries and the hand-wringing and the rebellion, those are things to fight against, not to find excuses to indulge. I know. God knows. 
that the last days are going to be terrible and that they are terrible. He said it in his word. And then in the next breath, he says, be grateful and holy. (laughs) I know. It seems backwards. Friends, remember, everything will make sense when you get to heaven. It will be forwards. But until then, we struggle. Until then, we fight. Until then, we must be quick to forgive and slow in our anger and in our frustration, just like our Heavenly Father is. Now, let's continue on in the Catechism. Question number 55, page 70. What responsibility, then, do God's representatives have toward those who break this commandment? That's an interesting way to put it, huh? What responsibility do parents and pastors and teachers and government people, what responsibility do they have towards those who do break this commandment? Proverbs 13, 24, a person who withholds his rod hates his son, but one who loves him administers discipline promptly. Do parents have God's blessing to let their children be rebellious? Do parents have God's blessing to let their own children be disrespectful towards them? The answer is a resounding no, unless you hate your son. And this is so backwards from the world, right? The world likes to say, well, parents should be the best friends with their kids. I don't know about that. What does the Bible say? You're not your kid's friend. You are your child's parent. Your kids have friends. They're out there. You ain't one of them. You are mom or dad. Now, it's a good thing to get along with your children and have your children get along with you. That's true. But at some point, you're going to have to discipline your children. Unless you hate them, says the Bible. If you hate your children, don't discipline them. Let them get away with everything. Let them get away with anything. Because finally, it's just better that we're at peace, right? Wrong! 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 Now, yes, discipline them promptly. Discipline them properly. Discipline them gently. I know that sounds backwards, but each kid is different but you have a holy obligation to your children to discipline them. Don't allow your children to rebel because you know what? Children who rebel at home, guess what? They rebel out in the world too. Now, I get it. Some of that's nuanced, right? My kids, for instance, I got a little kindergartner at home. She probably has the worst behavior at home than anywhere else. You know why? Because she's exhausted from fighting her sinful nature out in the world 24-7. So I get it. It's all nuanced. When your kids come home and they are rebellious and crabby and angry, well, probably some of them are that way because they've been reining it in all day long. They're exhausted from battling their sinful nature, and so that sinful rebellion comes slipping out. And part of the hardship of being a parent 
The hard part about being a parent is figuring out what do I discipline? What don't I discipline? How much do I discipline? How hard do I discipline? How little do I discipline? How gentle do I need to be? And on and on and on. And let me let you in on a little secret. You're going to get it wrong more often than you get it right. And so parents, you have a lot of reasons to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. (laughs) He teaches you something through being a parent, doesn't he? He teaches you something about yourself. And those are the hardest lessons to learn. It is so hard to see myself in my children. (laughs) Because then you're like, well, golly, I got to discipline myself a little bit better because I do that. I'm guilty of that. And yet the Bible says you owe them discipline. Prompt and appropriate discipline. How about at church? 2 Timothy 4.2, God's representatives at church, what responsibility do they have to those who break this commandment? Preach the word, it says. Be ready whether it is convenient or not to do what? Correct, rebuke, and encourage with all patience and teaching. Now, what does that mean to correct? Somebody is falsely or by mistake not quite right on something, we take the opportunity to gently correct. Actually, I want you to revisit what the Trinity means because you're too far here or there. Rebuke means somebody who is like boldly or maybe even arrogantly teaching false doctrine. Pastors and teachers are under divine directive to rebuke. Rebukes means sounds like this, the Lord rebuke you for what you're saying. Now, that might come after a long line of failed corrections, right? We don't need to jump to rebuking right away. First, you got to figure out, is the guy getting it wrong on purpose or on accident? If he's getting it wrong on accident, correct him. If he's getting it wrong on purpose, rebuke him. And encourage, keep going, keep studying, keep showing up. With all patience, be patient, and teaching. You don't just stand there in the corner waiting for them to get it right. You step in and point out the right way. And how about those who rebel against the government? Romans 13, 2 through 4. The one who rebels against authority is opposing God's institution. We read that. And those who oppose will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to evil. Would you like to have no fear of the one in authority? But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because he does not carry the sword, that's the Old Testament language we'd say, tools for punishment or execution. He doesn't carry the sword without reason. He is God's servant, a punisher to bring wrath on the wrongdoer. Did I just say that's Old Testament speak? I meant like old time speak, not Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is Romans. God has given punishing implements to the government for a reason, to use them on the wrongdoer. So don't do wrong. Now, when that punishment comes that we are owed, that we owe, then, question 56, also page 70, why can we consider such blessing, uh, such discipline to be a blessing for us? Why is it a blessing when your parents discipline you? 
Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son while there is hope. And I read that to mean early on, before they get into the habits, before they get carried away living in a way that they shouldn't. Discipline your son or daughter while there is hope, while it is correctable. Don't make yourself responsible for his death. That's kind of a scary prospect, huh? If you are a parent who refuses to discipline, then you are making yourself responsible for the death of your child. Don't do that. Correct them. 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4 selected verses in the catechism. Uh, You can read in there the example of Eli who refused to discipline his sons. And what happened to them? God killed them. They die young, falling away from God. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his sin just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've regained your brother, and that's a blessing. Family and friendship are strengthened when we walk together in hard times and regain each other. I've got one eye on the clock and a little bit left to finish in the fourth commandment. But instead of running through all the material, let me just close with this paragraph or two in the catechism under the A Closer Look section on page 71. Here's what it says. We often think of discipline as something that hurts us or takes away something good. I know my kids think that. Perhaps we remember the discipline of our parents. God has given parents the duty to discipline their children, but parents are not to abuse their children. Christian discipline in the home is ideally done in love to correct and train. And we get that wrong sometimes, don't we, parents? Sometimes you got to admit it, because i got to admit it. We discipline not out of love, but out of anger. Again, a reason for Jesus Christ to forgive us. Though discipline is generally unpleasant at the time, it is important training for life. You are going to gift the world your children someday. My mom has said when she was parenting, she never said I'm raising children. She said I'm raising adults. Good perspective, huh? I'm not raising little boys. I'm raising men. Remember that. You're going to release these children to the world someday. Let them be a blessing. Back in the catechism, discipline is not limited to the home and children. The government must also oppose bad behavior. This means police and judges correct or punish crime and disobedience to the law. At work, we have supervisors who also must discipline and train. In the church, leaders must oppose and discipline those who teach and act contrary to God's word. Christians are directed to obey all those the Lord has placed over them in all areas of life. Why? Because it is the Lord's institution. Now what happens if all you can see in all of the institutions is bad, bad, bad? Bad at home, bad in the government, bad at church then I think your perspective needs to be corrected. Then I would urge you to remember that God established those institutions to be a blessing to you. 
God is the one who established your home. If you grew up in a broken home or a bad home, maybe you have the opportunity to do something different. God is the one who established the government to be a blessing. God is the one who gave you your church congregation to be a blessing. My encouragement is this, friends, look at those institutions through the lens of Christ. Do you trust him? Do you trust your heavenly father to give you good things? Of course you do. And this is the same heavenly father who is designed and is pleased to bring you those good things through these institutions. Submit to them out of your love for the father. And if they go wrong, and if they go sideways, let God figure it out. Let him sort it out. You and I, out of love for our Heavenly Father, submit to the authorities. And we'll talk about the exception to that submitting next week. And yet we will. Because we are those who stand at the foot of the cross of Christ and say, finally, there. That's where everything is made right. That's where my promise is. That's where my future is. And when I get to that future, then I won't struggle. Then there won't be any of these questions left over. God will answer them when we live with him in heaven. My friends, the long goodbye. Until next week, hang in there. You can do it. Happy Reformation, by the way, next week. I'll see you back again. Until then, email me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. My friends, adieu.